this time I'm going to invite Josh Lewis up this morning. He's going to share our scripture today with us. So glad that, Josh, you are with us today. This is, a, by reminder, uh, uh, Aaron and Maggie have been on sabbaticals. Aaron's been on sabbatical for seven weeks. He's got two more weeks, uh, and we're excited to have him back. Of course, wish him a good time of rest. And, Josh, we're just thrilled that you're with us to bring God's word this morning. It's a great way to start. Ready for Aaron to come back. <laughs> but, no, I'm thankful to be here, thankful for you guys, thankful for God's word. And just as we just sang, the Lord Jesus is worthy of honor and glory and praise. And I, I pray, Lord, that that would be what happens this morning, that you would work in us and awaken in us a greater praise for your name, that we would live to your praise, that you would empower us and strengthen us with your word this morning. Lord, do this for Jesus' sake. Amen. I'm going to start by reading the text, but before I do that, as a segue, so the main point of today's text is not actually the mind and character of a Christian. So if you're taking notes, you can go ahead and change that. It's actually because the Lord Jesus is supreme, the family is for him. So you can... Cross that out. We'll, we'll see they're intimately connected. Actually, the, the family is where the expression of our Christian life is displayed, expressed. But let me go ahead and read the verses this morning. It's Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 to chapter 4, verse 1. Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. Children, Obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So I want to start with a question, and uh, I'd ask you, think about it, don't necessarily answer this out loud. What kind of car do you drive? So think about what kind of car do you drive. Maybe even think about why you drive that kind of car. So in the country that uh, MJ and my daughters used to live before we came here, it was common, it was a cultural norm to buy a very, very nice car. You know, the best car you could find. Mercedes, Audi, um, whatever. Not a station wagon. And the reason was, everybody sees your car And so you want people to think, look at this. This guy drives an Audi. He drives a a Mercedes. They must be well off. And and actually in this country, even the close friends we had, it's not usual to be invited into someone's home. Typically to show hospitality, you would invite someone out to a restaurant. And so we we enjoyed uh, some hospitality at the Mishler's house last night and we're thankful for that. But in this case, you might never see the home of even a close friend or coworker but you would always see their car. And so, 
How better to make people think that you are well off, that you're doing well, that you've made it in the world, than to buy an Audi? But if you really want to see how well off that person is, you'd actually go visit their home. And this truth is actually what we see in the text today. It's actually in the home that the character of a Christian is expressed. And if you want to see what a Christian, who a person really is, live a week in their house. And so that's the main point I want us to remember this morning. It's why I think the main thrust of Paul's argument here is because Christ Jesus is supreme, the family is for him. And so we've, we've gone through Colossians. We've tried to emphasize what Paul makes the main point, which is just that, the supremacy of Jesus. And he made that statement in chapter 1. He said in chapter 1, by him, actually let me start in verse 15. Speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And so that all things includes marriage. It includes parenting. It includes work. Marriage was created through him and for him. Parenting, the parent-child relationship, was created through him and for him. And work exists. It was created through him and for him. That's really a basic tenet of the Christian faith, that all things exist for him. And yet, it's so easy to drift away from that. I, I was thinking there's really just two ways. There's probably more than two. There's at least two ways we drift away from this simple truth. One is that we make a really practical text like this about the home. We make it pragmatism. Or we make it despotism. So by pragmatism, I mean that basically Paul gives us seven tried and true principles in this text. And if you want the perfect family, just take these principles and apply them to your home and voila. There you go. It doesn't even matter to the extreme extent in pragmatism. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or Muslim, Buddhist, atheist, if you just take these principles Paul gives and use them in the home, you'll have a good family life. That is not Paul's purpose in this text. And secondly, the word despotism, it just comes from the word despot, this overlord, this being who exists in the sky, the heavenly despot. If you don't follow these commands, he exists up there to punish you. It's obey your parents or else. Or submit to your husband, love your wife, or else he'll punish you. That is not what Paul is talking about. And so the way we avoid these two misconceptions is by just reading this text in its context. So we, Paul's purpose for these verses is not pragmatism. It is not despotism. It is praise. It's praise to Jesus. And you see that just by remembering what Colossians 1 and 2 said. Colossians 3 and 4, the practical application of the gospel. Colossians 1 and 2 is the gospel. These gospel truths that the Colossians heard. Let me just remind us. Colossians 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verses 12 to 13. He wanted the Colossians to give thanks to God, the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption 
and the forgiveness of sins. You were once in the kingdom of darkness. You were once dead. You were once hostile to God, alienated from him. And by grace, through faith in Jesus, now you are in the kingdom of light. You have an inheritance of saint, of, that all the saints have. You have redemption and forgiveness of sins. That is the reason that Christians live in the way we're called in chapters 3 and 4. It is praised. It's not to earn God's love. It's because God loves his people. And so that's why in these short nine verses, seven times, almost every verse, Paul roots the way people live in the home to their relationship with Jesus. Let's just walk through it quickly. Seven times he does this. He says, wives, submit to your husbands. Why? So that you get, can get them to love you or so that there won't be any conflict at home. That's not what he says. He says, no, because this is fitting in the Lord. Children, obey your parents, period. No, it says, children, obey your parents, for this pleases the Lord. Paul assumes that in a Christian home, children who are in Christ want to please the Lord. They want to do things that please the Lord Jesus. Servants, three times. Why do you obey your masters? It's not for a promotion or higher position. It's not for freedom. It's not for greater privileges in that relationship. It's because they fear the Lord. They serve the Lord ultimately. And their ultimate reward is actually from the Lord. And masters treat their servants with respect, with justice and fairness because they have a master in heaven. That's the Lord Jesus. All of these things, they're rooted in someone's relationship to the Lord Jesus. And it's not just the doing of these things that's important. It's the reason that we do them. So the household, that's what's described here in these verses. Like all things, it is for him. It is for Jesus. And that's, as you look at the connecting verse, last week we looked at the first, um, chapter 3, and it talked about Christian character, the mind and character of a Christian. And then in verse 17 it says, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then it goes into these verses. So doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus doesn't mean doing it for my name, for my praise, for my purposes. It means doing everything for his name, for the praise and honor and glory of his name and his purposes because these things exist for him. And so in fact, this passage will make clear that it's by means of our holiness in the home the way we relate to each other in the household, that our Christian character, our praise to Jesus is expressed. So I was thinking about it. You know, often you see these virtues in chapter 3 on um, banners or pictures in someone's home. Love, hope, patience, forgiveness, forbearance. And they look great on the wall. But when we think about them as attributes that we're supposed to display towards our crying child or our husband or wife who we're having an argument with, it becomes very uncomfortable. And yet this is where our Christian love, our Christian character, our praise to Jesus is expressed, is in these everyday relationships. The relationship between a husband and wife, the relationship between parents and children, the relationship between masters and slaves. In this case, it would be employees and employers. And so... 
be encouraged as we look at this. Paul is not like a politician. You know, when we watch on TV, a politician might give great sounding speeches, great promises. Paul is not going to give us great sounding gospel truths in chapters one and two and then just leave it with no substance. Paul actually gets into the nitty gritty details of what it looks like to practice this praise of Jesus in the home. So if you want to see praise in practice, look into the household. And so first, we'll look at verses 18 and 19. Marriage is for him. So that's what marriage is all about. Marriage is for the Lord Jesus. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So wives, what does making marriage for Jesus mean? It means submitting to your husband. And what that means, what submission means in this context, is voluntarily arranging yourself under your husband's loving leadership. And so I use the word loving leadership because you can't separate these two commands. The command for wives to submit to their husband is right beside the command for husbands to love their wives. And so this is loving leadership that they are leading their wife in. And so submission. Wives, voluntarily arranging yourself under your husband's loving leadership. And so note what this is not. This is not a general statement about men's higher position over women. This is particularly in the context of marriage in the relationship between a husband and a wife. Secondly, this is a command given to women. It is not a command given to men to enforce. And actually, as I was meditating on this this verse, I never really realized that. You often hear this verse, maybe even used by a man, a husband in a relationship who says, the Bible says you need to submit to me. The Bible actually is speaking to women, to wives in this verse. And it says to wives, wives, submit to your husbands. The command is given to women, to to wives, and the ball is in their court. And let's be honest, the action of submission for anyone is not easy. It takes strength. So, it's not easy to voluntarily place yourself under someone else's leadership. I'm trying not to cry this time, but my mom is here, and I never heard these words. I never knew about these concepts growing up. But I saw this kind of relationship between my mother and father, and I never, I never associated, sorry, I never associated a weakness with my mom. But why? Why submit? Why is this command here? That's important. The command is here not so that you experience marriage bliss. Not so that there's no conflict in the home. Paul tells wives in Colossus simply, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. The motivation to do this is because it's suitable for those who are in Christ. The motivation is because ultimately they are submitting to their heavenly husband, the Lord Jesus. And he leaves it there. And so wives, what does the way you yield to your husband and his leadership in the home say ultimately about your relationship to the Lord Jesus? I'm going to ask these questions of each group of people. So secondly, husbands. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And one commentator speaking about this verse 
uh, talked about how household codes in the Roman world were not a new thing. There were household codes in different cultures and they had multiple household codes. In fact, it was common to have these things, but it was very uncommon. In fact, these commentators could not find any other household code that commanded husbands to love their wives. That's because this is a distinctively Christian household code. Husbands, your leadership in the home ought to be reflective of the Lord's leadership of his bride. Loving. Because ultimately, those who are in Christ will be like Christ or will become more and more like Christ. We see that in Colossians 3.10. It says that of Christians, those who are in Christ, you have put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. And so, it should be one of love. I think that's where the prohibition for harshness comes in. Leadership is not a weapon. This leadership a husband is given is not a weapon to be used for his purposes, for his comfort and pleasure, and for whatever he wants to happen in the home. It is a tool given to him by Christ for the praise of his name. And it's to be wielded with love and care. And so we need to ask ourselves, if you are a husband, husband, how does the way you wield authority in marriage reflect Christ? Does it reflect, reflect Christ's love, his gentleness? Or is it more like the world? Is it harsh, domineering, and self-centered? So next, after talking about marriage, Husbands and wives, marriage is for the Lord Jesus. He moves to parenting. Parenting is for him. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. So children, how do you live to the praise of Jesus' name in the home? What does that look like? I think there's multiple things that Paul might have said, but he chiefly says you obey your parents. He says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. So that means not just when it's cool, not just when it's convenient, not just when none of your friends are around, so it's not uncool to obey your parents. He means all the time. In, in all that your parents ask you to do, you should obey them. I think when he talks about children, he's speaking of anyone who's in a, a young age living at home under their parents' authority. Uh, the word child in Greek is apparently like the word child in English. It's somewhat vague. I don't consider myself a child too much anymore. But So, not that I don't obey my parents. But obedience isn't listed here on its own. Obedience is listed here with a motivation, with a reason. It says, children, obey your parents, for this pleases the Lord. And so one note, that means that if your parents do ask you to do something that is in clear contradiction to God's commands, you should respectfully disobey. But in most cases, that likely is not happening. That means, why are you doing? Why are you obeying your parents? The motivation ought to be because you want to please the Lord. You want to do what He desires. So, does the way you yield to your parents' authority in the home, does it show that you desire to please the Lord or that you desire to please yourself? Or even, ultimately, you just want to please your parents? Next, parents. 
Some translations actually translate verse 21, fathers, as parents. I think this is a temptation that both mothers and fathers face, and it's something that both should avoid, but particularly fathers. It says, fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Some translations say, provoke to anger. So, uh, MJ and I are reading uh, several marriage, uh, not marriage, we were reading a marriage book. We're reading several parenting books. And what has become painfully but mercifully clear is that often our default motivation for parenting our daughters is that we want them to do the right things. We want to modify their behavior so that they do the right things, that they obey. And that's not a wrong thing. We, we say, you know, girls, pick up your toys. Are you going to obey mommy and daddy? We want them to be polite. We want them to treat each other with respect. We want them to be quiet. We don't want them to scream in the house. None of these things are wrong. But if these things are disconnected from Jesus, you can start to see how they might be provoking your child to anger. It becomes this disconnected system of rules where you're just exerting force and control on a child and saying, do this, don't do that, stop doing that, stop doing that, and a hundred times over. You can see how that would provoke a child to anger. But how different would the whole approach be when the end goal isn't just obedience, but it's praise to Jesus? It's a desire that your children would not only obey you, but obey you for the right reasons, that they want to please the Lord. They want to live their lives to do all things in word and deed for his name. So we shouldn't just be creating a system of rules and commands to follow, particularly geared towards what we want, but we should be caring for them, talking with them, pointing them to Jesus and the way you parent. And so I want to ask, does the way you wield authority in the home over your children, how does it reveal a heart that desires Jesus to be praised? Or does it only reveal a desire for control, a desire for mere obedience? or behavior modification. So lastly, this is actually the biggest section, and it's really the central section to this whole passage. Paul is focusing on the master-bond-servant relationship. And it's the lengthiest section, and I I think there's a clear reason why. If you look at chapter 4, verses 7 to 9, I didn't put this in the PowerPoint, but we read in verses 7 to 9, Paul is sending this letter with a man named Tychicus, but also a man named Onesimus. And if you've read the book Philemon, a few few letters later, Philemon was a master in Colossae who quite likely had a house church in his home. And Onesimus was his bondservant who very likely stole from him and ran away. But after he'd run away, he actually had become a Christian under Paul's ministry. And whether it's right now or already, he had returned to this bondservant relationship with his master, Philemon. And so, one, that's really awkward. You know, in a church like this, with lots of people, you could blend in. There's no blending in for Onesimus in a small church like that. So Paul wants the bondservants and masters to know what happened here is not okay. He did write to Philemon saying, you should forgive him. I'll make right anything that happened, what, probably what was stolen, but I want you to accept him as a brother. 
But I think what Paul is doing here is he is instructing there is a right way and a wrong way for bondservants and masters to treat one another. And he's not saying and that whole thing with Onesimus, it wasn't a big deal. So that's important. He does say in Colossians 3.11, in Christ there is neither slave nor free. But that doesn't mean he says here, so don't worry about it. No need to obey your masters. He in fact does say, therefore, obey your masters. So, two notes that we need to talk about before we get into this. One is that this institution of slavery in the Roman world, it's often misunderstood. And part of that is because we, we take into it our context in American history. We read into it what we think slavery is. And so, as a result, I, I use this really cheap ESV gift Bible. It has almost no notes. But in the two-page preface, that's not very long, it devotes two or three paragraphs just to defining the way slave is used in the Bible. And so from that, it says that in the ESV translation, which I'm reading, slave was used for people who had little hope of gaining freedom. Bondservant was used to describe a person who might have agreed to work for someone else for pay or to repay a debt. And the bondservant could, in fact, gain freedom by paying a set price or by serving for a set length of time. And so this institution, it is different than the employee-employer relationship we have in America. But the principles we see in it are applicable to your relationship with your employer or if you're an employer with your employees. And lastly, Paul is instructing the, the Colossians how to live in the midst of this Roman institution. He's not condoning it. He's not saying that it's okay, but he isn't trying to overthrow it. He's simply addressing and teaching them how to live honoring the Lord in its midst. And so we don't really have that institution, but we as workers, employers and employees, need to hear this. In summary, Paul tells the Colossians, our fear in work is of him, not merely of our earthly superiors. Our reward is from him and it overshadows our earthly rewards and justice and fairness are in him. And so masters are to reflect him. And so first, bondservants. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. So our fear in work is of him, not merely of our human supervisors or employers. Paul is contrasting two kinds of work here, and you see that when he says earthly, earthly masters. He's contrasting two kinds of work, two ways you could work. One is distinctively Christian, and one is definitely not. And so, he says, bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. So think about it this way. We all know how a coworker, or even we ourselves, works when the boss enters the room or if the boss is right next to you. You know, you're diligently working. Sometimes you're a little nervous because they're looking over your shoulder. And even if you're not busy, you're definitely looking like you're busy, right? Because your boss is in the room. But when the boss leaves things might change a little. When the cameras are turned off or there's no other people in the room or in this case, in our day and age, if you're working remotely on your own, you might be a little bit more relaxed. You might take it a little easy. 
And in other words, we might not actually work as hard as we ought for our employer. Paul says that's people-pleasing and that's eye service when we work in that way. And if we're honest, all of us have done that. I have done that. When I work, where I work, the cameras, there's cameras in every area and there's supervisors who walk, walk around the building. Their job is to manage the employees and to observe that things are going on. But supervisor, supervisors aren't always there. And the cameras at, at where I work, you can actually turn it down so that you can't even see what people are doing. People do that. But the Lord Jesus sees all things, even the attitudes of our hearts. And so Paul commands these bond servants, don't work in such a way that shows you're only working to curry favor with your master. But when he's gone or when no one's looking, you're not working heartily. He says, work heartily as for the Lord. Work heartily. That's the how you're working. You're working hard because you're working not for your earthly master, but for the Lord. So we need to ask ourselves as employees, does your fear at work show that you're yielding simply when others are around for some sort of earthly reward? Or are you yielding to the Lord who's present at all times, working heartily at all times for Him? So it's not just how we work though, it's also why we work. You can work heartily but not actually be working with a Christian work ethic. He says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. So our reward is from him and overshadows any earthly compensation. Paul reminds these Colossian bondservants of something awesome. And so you might miss this, but these bondservants had little to no hope of any sizable inheritance. That's what had them in this position to begin with. And yet Paul tells them, you have something far greater than any earthly inheritance you could imagine. He tells them that you have an inheritance not earned by you, but purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ himself for you and he's not saying work heartily to earn that inheritance he's saying work heartily because that inheritance is already yours in Christ purchased for you by him so we see the connection you work heartily as as if you're working for the Lord not for an earthly employer because you know you will receive that inheritance as you are in Christ So God has designed us to respond to incentives, to rewards. It's not wrong. When you get a raise at work, you work hard. You work harder. You probably work happier. I got a raise recently. I was happy. I can only assume I was working slightly harder. Paul is saying your reward in Christ is greater than any earthly compensation you could receive. Therefore, work thankfully and work heartily for him. The largest 401k you can imagine will run out. And that's if inflation doesn't kill it before you get to it. I mentioned earlier, I I was reading a news article in Lebanon, inflation has skyrocketed and people can't even buy gas. Not that that will happen, but it is within the realm of possibility in America that all those savings could be gone in a day. 
we work heartily for him. Not for a 401k or a promotion or a placard or a raise. We work for him because those things are good, but they're not distinctively Christian. Everybody works for a raise. Everybody works hard to slowly save money in a 401k. What's Christian is that we work heartily for our earthly masters because we have a heavenly master for whom all things exist. And yet this heavenly master gave himself on a cross, dying as if he was a criminal, bearing the wrath of God so that we might have forgiveness and a right relationship with God and a certain hope, a sure hope of an eternal life with him where there will be no sickness, sadness, death, or sin. No lack. Now firstly, what a good and gracious king. This is not a despot, an overlord. This is a good king. And what is the way we work say about that inheritance? Does the way you work for the Lord treat this inheritance as if it's only minimum wage? We have a sure and great inheritance in Christ. That is yours if you have trusted in him. But it's not just the reward that Paul points to. It's also the, the justice, the Lord's sure justice. And so next he says, For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. Paul might be talking here about a master abusing a bondservant. But what seems more likely is he's actually still addressing bondservants and he has Onesimus's particular situation in mind. He's thinking of this bondservant who had run away, stolen some of his master's money, and now has returned into this church. He wants them to know God is just. He does not show partiality to the rich or the poor. He does not show partiality to bondservants or masters. He treats everyone with justice. So don't wrong your earthly master in how you work. Work heartily for him because God is just. Lastly, he says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So like the section on husbands and wives, this command for reciprocal love from masters to servants was not common in household codes. It was not heard of. And Colossians would have saw this. They would have, it would have leaped out to them. For those who are supervisors, teachers, managers, business owners, how can you work for the Lord? What does it look like to do everything in word and deed for the sake of his name? It means justice and fairness. Justice means right, righteousness. It means treating people rightly. And there's a lot of overlap with fairness. It means giving people equality, treating people with equality. So he's saying we are to treat people with justice and fairness. So I want to ask, are you using your authority, if you have authority, if you're an employer in a position at work, are you using your authority to make decisions, manage people, reprimand students or workers, establish policies? Are you doing it in a right and just way? Is it being done with equality and fairness? 
to those around you. The higher we get in the chain of command, I think the easier it is to act as if you're not under anyone's authority. You feel less and less like you have to give account to anyone. And Paul reminds these masters, you treat those under you with justice and fairness because you have a heavenly master and he is just and fair. They're to reflect his character. And as I was thinking about this text the last few weeks, uh, a, a month or two ago I took a, a promotion at work to now I'm a supervisor and I have some people under me and I used to work with these very people in the same position. So there are some difficulties. One of them is a guy, is, I won't mention his name, but he's told me multiple times, now I am, mind you, I'm, ma- I'm paid to manage. That's, that's my job. And he tells me multiple times, don't manage me. I don't need managed. You can see how this would create a daily conflict. And so we don't get along. We're, we try to love each other. I try to love him. And I am constantly exhorted by this text. My temptation, I have a position of authority over him. I could use that position of authority to send him to some other place where I won't have to deal with him. I could use that position of authority to to make him do harder work as punishment for not treating me rightly. There's a temptation to wield authority in that way. And God, through Paul, says here, no, you're to treat this person with justice and fairness, even if he treats you in a different way. So, the main idea, Christ is supreme, therefore, family is for him. Work is for him. Parenting is for him. Marriage is for him. And I, I know this can sound overwhelming. As I was meditating on this text, I was often convicted. I fall short as a husband, as a father, as a worker who has been on both sides. I fall short of this. And so we need to remember, again, these are the lifestyles of Christians, those who are in Christ, those who have already been purchased by him, by his blood. Remember what was said in Colossians chapter 1. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. So I, I read that because chapters 1 and 2 say that these Colossians are not to live in this way to earn God's love. They're living in this way because they already have it. We love because he first loved us. So these people are to reflect him. They're to be like him because they are already in him. And so I, I want to remind us of that because the temptation is always to beat up on yourself to listen to the enemy. He wants to condemn you. He wants to say you've fallen short. So we need to remember our righteousness comes not from doing these things, but from Christ. You are righteous if you've trusted in him. But you are growing into that likeness of Christ. And one day, you will be blameless. One day, you will be holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He will accomplish his work in his people. Uh, one principle I just want to leave us with to close. This has ministered to me as I have been, in, I'm a husband, a father, a supervisor. I also have other roles. What has helped me in applying this to myself and seeking to find the power to fulfill these commands in Christ 
has been this statement. He for whom all things exist gave himself for me that I might live for him. He for whom all things exist gave himself for me that I might live for him. So as I've sought to honor the Lord as a a father, a husband, a supervisor, I think this statement was helpful and I want to leave you with that. Let me pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you haven't given us burdensome commands to lift on our own, our own power, our own righteousness. But Christ Jesus, you gave yourself for your people, for your bride. You loved your bride to the end. You rose again. You are reigning right now and you are righteous. And by grace, all who trust in you have your righteousness. We're clothed in your righteousness. Thank you. I pray for us to walk in the gospel, to believe in the gospel this week as we fall short, to trust that it is your righteousness that writes us with God. And also I pray that we would look to you for the power and the strength to love those around us, to serve those around us, to use authority the way you did and to yield to those in authority over us in the way you did. Lord, we ask for your help. We thank you that you're with us. We thank you that you want to accomplish this in us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.